You may, you may hit a few hard patches, but for the most part, the first day is quite difficult. So feel at least content that you made it through. And now we are entering coolness, silence. I'm going to talk a little bit tonight, but um, not too much. There have been a lot of words today. There often are a lot of words on the first few days of a retreat, and hopefully we will be able to be more silent as the week goes on. So tonight I want to uh, start by uh, telling you a little bit of my story, how I got involved with this funny business of teaching Dharma. I had no intention of this ever happening. It wasn't something, it wasn't a a career path that I sent out (laughs) to to embark on. I was a transplant from New York City to Los Angeles. And I had a background in psychology. And I met a friend, a a woman who's become a very dear friend. And she was a friend. uh, She's a writer in Los Angeles. And she, she, this was back in, the late 70s. She was a friend of the the songwriter Leonard Cohen. And he had told her about this really cool Roshi that he was studying with and suggested that she do a a retreat with him. And she told me about it and suggested that I go with her. And so I did. And I ended up at Mount Baldy Zen Center and entering a, a kind of situation that I was fairly clueless about. I really had no idea what I was getting into. And um, it was probably a good thing that I didn't know what I was getting into. (laughs) If I had known, I never would have gone. And who knows what might have happened. But I went. And what I wandered into is probably the strictest form of Zen practice. Um, taught by a very traditional Japanese Roshi, who is still alive to this day, Suzaki Roshi, and uh, very, you know, pro- really typical, fierce and loving, both, both at once. How else to say it but that? So what I understood from, from going into that experience and being told what the schedule would be, and what I was to wear, and how I was to sit, and how much I was to eat, and how fast I was to eat, and what time I was to wake up, and when I was supposed to be where. And the whole thing was very, very, very structured. This makes what we're doing here look like, you know, a day at the beach. But nevertheless, I was, you know, young and I was enthusiastic. It seemed like it was really interesting. I didn't really know what it was about, but I, I had always wanted answers in my life. I had always wanted answers. So I thought, well, if I really follow the rules here, I will get some answers. So I followed the rules. And I got up at 3 in the morning, and I ran to the chanting hall and chanted for a half an hour in Japanese really fast, which really wakes you up at that hour of the morning. And then I ran to the Roshi's room and did my bows. And I had no idea what 
he was going to say to me or what was going to happen in that meeting. And I was a, more than a little surprised when he said to me, this is your koan. He said, what is your Buddha nature when you hear the sound of a bird? Well, nobody had ever asked me anything vaguely resembling that in all my life. And I think my first response was, I beg your pardon? Because I was just so amazed that any question like that would be, you know, coming my way. So uh, that was, we went downhill from there, basically. I never had a clue as to what we were, why he was asking this question or what possible answer I could give. I had all, as I said, going into the situation, I had a lot of questions and I wanted answers. I didn't get any of my questions answered that entire week. I learned so many rules. I didn't know there could be rules for breathing and rules for eating and rules for taking a nap and rules for this and rules for that. I learned so many rules and I survived, which was quite an amazing feat, but I didn't get any answers whatsoever. And it seems like <clears throat> it's not unreasonable for us to come into situations wanting answers and trying to figure out the rules so that we can uh, do it right. There's a certain amount of desire in us when we come into a situation to sort of get the, the sense of the territory. And a lot of religious traditions do have a lot of rules, and they are quite happy to tell you what the rules are. And there's this a whole idea that if you really follow the rules carefully, you know, the, the, the answers will come. Well, our approach at this retreat is a little bit different. Instead of telling you a lot of rules, the rules here at Spirit Rock are fairly simple. What are they? Relax. Slow down. Take it easy. Keep looking inside. Be kind to yourself and your neighbors. Don't hurt anything. Take your time and keep looking again and again and again inside. That's basically the rules here. So we give these rules as just enough structure to create a safe space for all of us to live in together for this week, to live harmoniously and with a feeling of ease and trust in each other. But that's about it. When we create this kind of safety and this container, we're, we're also creating this sense that we can relax and that we can uh, look inside. And in this retreat, we are emphasizing the um, giving ourselves permission to relax, to look inside, 
to be present, to discover, not to try to figure out, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? But actually to use the space for your own discovery. Our painting teacher, Michelle Cassou, when she was young and living in Paris, she really wanted to paint. So she went to art school. And she bumped into a lot of rules. She bumped into a lot of teaching about technique and perspective and all the how-tos of this and that, which one learns when one goes to art school. And at the end of the year, she was told that she had no talent because her technique was not very good. She wasn't following the rules in the way that they thought were necessary, was necessary. Now, she was very disappointed because this was something she really wanted. So she left and uh, didn't know what to do. She still loved the idea of painting. But eventually, uh, she signed up for a class with children. She thought, well, I couldn't make too many mistakes going to paint with the, with the children. And so she did. She painted with the children for several years, I think. And that was where she learned these principles of creativity, which we are teaching you on this retreat. She learned them from the children, from the beginner's mind of children that don't come with a lot of rules and regulations and techniques and shoulds and how-tos, but just that spirit of adventure and play and curiosity and openness and the willingness to try anything. That's where this whole thing came from, from following her own unique uh, kind of intuition about what was really uh, her path. So what are we giving you permission here to do? We're not giving permission just to, you know, go wild and you know, do whatever you want, although at times there's something good about that because we live in such a, often such a confined way. We have so many rules for ourselves that we don't even know we're operating by, but they lead to a kind of heaviness and tightness and constriction and seriousness that, you know, it doesn't feel real good. So sometimes it does feel very good to break out of that and do whatever we want. But then we need to go deeper than that. This is not just about, I want to do this, I want to do that, but really to go deeper and to explore in a deeper way what is true. What is trying to move through me? What, what is this? What does it mean to be curious, to discover for myself what is true? The Buddha's invitation, when he started teaching after his enlightenment, was not, well, this is what you do. You do this and this and this and this and this. 
but rather his invitation was, come see for yourself. Come discover for yourself what is true. And I know when I first heard that invitation, it was very powerful for me, because it was such a trusting kind of invitation. It wasn't, you've got to believe this and do that, but it was, come see for yourself if what I say is true. And that was uh, the invitation that is still made today. Come discover for yourself. Come explore for for yourself. So that is the permission that we are giving you on the cushion to explore what it is, what is going on, moment to moment, off the cushion, in Qigong, to move perhaps in ways you've never moved in your life, to discover the energetic body. We have this physical body, but we also have a breath body, and we have an energy body, to begin to discover all these different ways of experiencing ourselves. You can read about it in books, but to come and explore it for yourself, to discover it for yourself, is a whole different thing. We're also giving you permission to question, to find the questions that are meaningful to you that will lead you further, not to find the answers. But, you know, all my years of practice, I don't think I've ever gotten an answer. (laughs) But I have found answers through my own exploration and through my own willingness to question. That is where, if there have been any answers, they have come through that, not through uh, somebody else's authority or somebody else's words. So permission to question, to really find deep, powerful questions for yourself. This is a great um, ally in your journey. We are giving you permission at the same time to not know You know, it's okay to not know things. And there's a lot here that's going on that may be quite new to you. And so what we try to do when we come into an unfamiliar situation is to fit what's happening into what we already know, to make it understandable to ourselves. Perfectly, you know, kind of understandable thing to do, but really to allow ourselves not to know so much. That is perhaps a new territory for many of you. It's okay not to know here. What do you need to know right now? Is there anything you need to know? Is somebody burning with a desire to know something right now that must be, you must know? Right now you don't need to know anything. You're here, you're listening, the crickets are chirping, your body may be a little tired, but you're breathing, 
Is there anything more you need to know? It's also okay not to have opinions about things. One of the ways that we orient ourselves in life and the way we identify who we are is we have a lot of opinions. One of the teachers in this tradition said, do not seek for the truth, only cease to cherish your opinions. Because we do tend to cherish our opinions. We tend to think our opinions are the right ones. And we tend to hold on to those opinions. What would it be like not to have such strong opinions? I taught this one time in Washington, D.C., and a woman came up to me afterwards very disturbed because she said, I work for a a political lobbyist here in Washington. She said, I'm paid to have opinions. And you're telling me to let them go? Our world is full of opinions. And the belief that opinions, that we have to have our opinions, it defines who we are. But experiment. What if you went through this whole week without having to have such strong opinions. We're giving you permission not to have judgments. What would it be like not to have so many judgments of yourself? Did you notice any judgments of yourself arising today? How many people noticed some judging going on? Please raise your hand. Well, look around. You've got company. And especially, you know, when we're painting like this, and this visual world is, is all around us, it's so easy to have judgments, isn't it? And in a, in a funny way, that's part of the value of, of painting in this way. We see so clearly our fear of being judged, our judgments of others. What if we just let all that go? Imagine going through this week without judging yourself. Is it possible? When I say that, what comes to your mind? Anyone? A tall order, yes. It seems like unimaginable. Well, here's a little exercise. Imagine going through your life 24-7 and having a companion with you who was constantly judging you, criticizing you, telling you how you should be, telling you you did it wrong, telling you you could do it better. What would that be like? (laughs) Divorce court. Perhaps it is an exaggeration of something that is already occurring. Perhaps you are already having that kind of relationship to yourself. Now imagine going through your life for 24 hours and having somebody with you who was completely loving and accepting and encouraging 
who gave you just loving feedback about how well you were doing and what a pleasure it is to be in your company and to watch you learn and explore. What would that be like? Can you imagine that? What comes up when I say that? Anyone? How does it feel energetically in your body to imagine that? Can anybody go there? Huh? Free. Free. That's a good word. Free. What other words come to your mind? Surrender? Surrendered? Liberated. Happy. Lovely. Lovely. I wouldn't believe it, though. It would seem false to me. It would seem false to you. Why? I don't think people are like that, particularly. I think you can act like that. So you would imagine that they didn't really mean it? Not all the time. Not all the time. Maybe sometimes? <laughs> so this is just a little exercise to play in your own mind with what some of the possibilities are. Because we, are, we tend to be so hard on ourselves. And sometimes the first lesson of meditation is to see how judging of ourselves we are how much we live by these internal rules of how we think we should be. And we're actually giving you the space here this week to expose some of those rules, to say, wow, is that true that I'm such a wretched, unworthy, slovenly, lazy, selfish person, or whatever your words are? To really explore that as part of your practice. Is it true? So part of um, what happens when we practice is we get very honest. And we're giving you permission this week to be very honest, to look inside and honestly recognize what is true. And that does not mean beating yourselves up. It kind of happens naturally as we meditate, as we practice, that we do just get more honest about what is really going on. We let ourselves know what we know. You know, it's like if someone says to you, um, would you like a piece of apple pie? And you don't really want it, but you say, oh yes, thank you very much, that's really nice, and then you feel obligated to eat it, and If we check in with our body, we just may say, no, thank you. If we get really honest. We may hear questions, I, you know, working at Spirit Rock, would you be on the committee to raise funds for a new roof? 
would you show up tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock and take my twins to the pediatrician? Would you this? Would you that? Will you marry me? All these questions, you know, from the very mundane to the quite life-changing, we have opportunities to really check in with ourselves and to know honestly what we feel about this and trust, perhaps, what our body is telling us. Trust our gut response. Why don't we do that more often? Because we so often want to please people. We want to fit an image, in, not in their minds, in our own minds, of the kind of person we are. I would love to be the kind of person who could always show up for anybody's need and without any resentment. But that's unreal. That's not who I am. Not yet. Maybe someday. But to be honest about who we are and what our actual feeling is. Gee, you know, I just don't think I can do that right now. Thank you for asking. Thank you for thinking of me. But no, I can't marry you right now. It's just not possible. (laughs) You know, that's a kind of life-changing decision. We may marry the person because we think, you know, I'd like to be the kind of person who would marry such a person. (laughs) But maybe that's not the best basis for a long-term commitment. So we have a chance in meditation to check in with this, this gut level knowing, this energy body that knows, yes, like something brought you to the retreat, yes. Or this energy body that says, no, not right now. I need some time to myself, or I need, I don't need apple pie. So this is a process that as we meditate, we learn to be more true to ourselves, to our actual experience. And this is important because it is in staying true to our actual experience that we actually learn and that we actually grow. We come to learn to trust in ourselves a kind of knowing, a kind of intelligence that's not based on the thinking mind. This is extremely helpful, extremely important. Even the Buddha himself, when he left his um, (coughs) life in the palace and went in search of truth, he studied with many teachers who told him all kinds of things to believe and all kinds of practices to do, and he did all of them, and he followed all the rules, and he, he did really well. But he felt, at the end of all that, that something was still missing. So he didn't have too much to go on because he had exhausted all the authorities of the day. There was nobody else to ask what he should do. So he was thrown back on his own resources to trust himself. And that is what he did. So 
So in meditation, as well as in the painting, we're having an opportunity to stay true to our experience. For some reason, to this morning, I just want a lot of blue. Can you move with that? Can you allow that? Or I want black. I need black right now. Who can say why? There's no why. There's only the recognition of something that is connecting on a deeper level than your mind, than your thinking mind. We're not then moving and painting from a should, but from a deeper knowing, an intelligence which can actually be trusted. final area that I'd like to mention to you is the whole area of um, giving ourselves permission. Well, let me first tell you a little story that comes from the cosmologist um, Brian Swim. He's a man who has studied, has given his life to studying the origins of the universe, the evolution of the universe, how species come and go, planets, galaxies, the whole show that we're a part of. And he writes this. He says, each species has its own habitat, that place where the species can flower forth. If a species cannot find its proper habitat, its true powers of life cannot be evoked. A species denied its habitat perishes. We see this all around us. And then he asks the question, what is the true habitat of the human? That's such an interesting question. What is the true habitat of the human? Any notions? As a species, what do we need the most? His answer is adventurous play. (laughs) Adventurous play. A human denied this habitat of adventure and surprise and play is denied the opportunity to become truly human. Isn't that interesting? It makes me think of... um, Bali, the country of Bali, where they certainly have cultivated the art of play, where play and the arts and the spiritual spiritual are all connected, and they're like a big part of life there. They're not on the sidelines, they're front and center. The activity of making art, of devoting oneself to spiritual knowledge and playing are all intimately connected. So when we come to um, spiritual practice as well as creative practices, we are giving ourselves permission to play. We're learning how to play at all levels of our being, to open our being to question, to wonder, to curiosity, 
opening our being energetically to play with the life force of the universe, opening our, our creative spirit to flower in whatever way it is moved to do so. And in that we are playing in the biggest possible sense of the word. So this theme of giving ourselves permission we've really wanted to bring forth to you today, and it won't be the last time we mention it, but it is such an important um, allowing, both to allow ourselves to move into the intensity of of the, the painting with the feelings that get involved, the feelings it evokes, the imagery, the power of the colors and the images wanting to be expressed. And at other times, allowing ourselves to go very deeply into great stillness and silence, to allow ourselves to be absolutely empty That is also part of the play of practice, knowing both of these domains. And on this retreat, we're really having an opportunity to move back and forth between the two, because our lives contain both. Our lives are not just empty, nor are they just completely filled with intensity and expression. They are... uh, Both occur in our lives, so it behooves us to learn how to play in both domains. This reminds me of a quote by Nisargadatta Maharaj, where he says, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. And between the two, my life flows. So we are learning this flow of emptying and engaging, emptying and engaging. So this is the particular flavor of this retreat, the particular opportunity of this retreat. So I think enough words for this evening. Maybe we could just sit for a moment together. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on September 20, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.